In the Chronicles of Narnia, ordinary boys and girls transformed into kings and queens. And they made good laws and kept the peace, and saved good trees from being unnecessarily cut down, and liberated young dwarfs and young satyrs from being sent to school, and generally stopped busybodies and interferers, and encouraged ordinary people who wanted to live and let live. And when children read the book, they may have thought that the world where the author lived, in England, was magical too. You kind of expect people to be riding around on chargers wearing silver armor and stuff, you know? That's Douglas Gresham. When he was eight years old, he met the author of The Chronicles of Narnia. In fact, it was a terrible disappointment, really. <laughs> Douglas had grown up in upstate New York. In the 1950s, he and his mother went to England, where they met the author for the first time. His name was C.S. Lewis. But Douglas, he calls him Jack, his nickname. I expected him to be a stalwart, tall, strong-looking, noble-looking gentleman, probably wearing armor and carrying a sword. <laughs> when I walked into the kitchen, which is where we met, and Jack came to meet us, I saw he was a stooped, balding, professorial-looking gentleman with long, nicotine-stained fingers and teeth. The absolute antithesis of everything I'd imagined. And for a moment or two, I was disappointed. But soon, very soon, within a few seconds, actually, uh, less than a minute, his enormous sense of humor and his charm and his delight at meeting us and all of the kind of welcome he gave us, his, his goodness overcame any... I, I lost uh, an illusion and gained a very, very fine friend and later stepfather. I'm Lindsay Jacobson, and this is Remember Reading from HarperCollins, a podcast where we talk about classic children's books. On today's show, we're going to spend some time with the Chronicles of Narnia, especially the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a beloved fantasy novel that Douglas says continues to influence children's book writers today. There are quite a few good children's books coming out these days. Many times I can determine and discover within books that I'm given to read by somebody a quick touch of a little bit of C.S. Lewis's hand in them. We'll also talk with the author of the Artemis Fowl series, Owen Colfer. He is one of the writers who credits the Narnia books for his love of fantasy. When you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's almost like you go through that wardrobe yourself. And you're not coming back from that. It's such an amazing, imaginative and fantastic world that you can't kind of unread that or unlearn it. And if you're a young writer, you immediately start writing fantasy stories. And that's what I did. Throughout this episode, you'll hear clips from The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe audiobook. But before we dive into the story, Douglas is going to tell us about a side of C.S. Lewis that most of us don't really know about. Lewis can seem as mythical as the world of Narnia. But to Douglas, his stepson, he was also a real person. Clive Staples Lewis was born in Ireland in 1898. He moved to England as a child, served in World War I, and earned two degrees from Oxford, where he later taught. Douglas first encountered him through The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Douglas's mother, Joy Davidman, read the book to him when it reached them in upstate New York. He was about five years old. That's how I got my love for reading. Little did he know that its author would soon play a huge role in his life. Some years earlier, 
Douglas's mother had started corresponding with Lewis. When Douglas was eight, he, his mother, and his brother sailed across the Atlantic to England and settled there. Joy Davidman's relationship with Lewis deepened. A couple years later, though, she was diagnosed with cancer. And eventually it became more and more serious. And it was at that point that uh, my stepfather-to-be, Jack, or C.S. Lewis, as most people know him, decided that he didn't want this woman to simply leave him uh, you know, in the lurch, as it were, uh, without marrying him first. They wed when she thought she was on her deathbed. Miraculously, she got better. Douglas says the years after her recovery were some of the happiest for the whole family. He says his mother and Lewis really created a fun and intellectually stimulating home. They used to play Scrabble. Well, they would take the boards from one Scrabble set and the, all the letter tiles from two Scrabble sets, and they would sit down in our common room and put the board out, and, and they would play Scrabble using all known languages, factual or fictional. But you had to be able to prove that the word you had just put down on the Scrabble board did really exist somewhere in the, some book in the house. He recalled an instance when they were walking on the grounds around the house. They'd had a ton of trespassers, and Douglas's mother bought a shotgun to scare them away, of course. They were walking up the hill into the woods. And at the top of the hill, they stopped to just get a breather, I suppose, let my mother have a little break. And she had the shotgun cradled under her arm. Suddenly, from out behind us, some shrubbery leapt a young man, dressed in some sort of weird garment. I think he thought he was Robin Hood all over again carrying a longbow and a quiver of arrows. And Jack said, excuse me, but very politely, uh, excuse me, but this is private property and you shouldn't be here. Would you mind leaving? And the character's response to that was to knock an arrow to the string, draw the bow back and point it at them. Instantly, Jack stepped in front of my mother to shield her from the arrow. Not even, he didn't even stop to think. He just instantly stood in front of my mother to protect her. And he stood there for a few seconds, I suppose wondering what to do next. Until he heard my mother in tones of chilled steel say from behind him, God damn it, Jack, get out of my line of fire. Eventually, the man fled, but the episode made an impression on Douglas. I learned from that moment that Jack and my mother not only faced her illness and his difficulties with huge courage, inward courage, they also had the courage of warriors. When Joy got sick again, they battled her illness again together. Douglas says that Lewis tried to take on Joy's pain as much as he could. The cancer was in her legs at that time, pretty savagely. And she was in absolute agony with the pains in her legs. And Jack prayed that if there was any way that God could allow it, that he would be allowed to accept the pain and it would leave my mother. And almost instantly, Jack had to sit down. Suddenly, her face went white and he was in absolute excruciating agony with his legs. And that went on until my mother had relaxed enough and the pain had disappeared from her legs into his until she was able to go to sleep. Joy died soon after. She was the second person close to Lewis to die of cancer. His mother passed away from the disease when he was just a child. Douglas was raised by Lewis after that, and he paints a picture of his stepfather as almost saintly. But in his books... C.S. Lewis explores sometimes dark themes. Like in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It was published in 1950. By then, Lewis was in his 50s and already an established writer. 
He was known for his science fiction, criticism, and nonfiction. Douglas says Lewis decided to try writing children's books after discussions with a friend, none other than J.R.R. Tolkien. The two of them were part of a literary club. They called it the Inklings. Sometime just after the First War, I think, or it might have been during the Second War, sometime around that era, and talking about the fact that both of them deplored what was being written and published at that time for children. They just couldn't stand this newfangled way of writing for children and the nonsense that these children's books were foisting on the children. So they both said, well, you know, we ought to try it ourselves. Tolkien, of course, went and wrote The Hobbit. And Lewis created Narnia. Since he was 16 years old, he had been carrying around an image of a fawn with an umbrella and parcels in a snowy wood in his head. That became a scene. His goddaughter, Lucy, inspired a main character. The book tells the story of four siblings, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, who are sent to live with an old professor in the country during the war. The professor's big house has mysterious spare rooms, many of them lined with old books and pictures. One rainy day, the kids go exploring. They find a room with nothing in it but a big wardrobe. Lucy opens it. Fur coats hang inside. She steps in. Soon she went further in and found that there was a second row of coats hanging up behind the first one. It was almost quite dark in there, and she kept her arms stretched out in front of her so as not to bump her face into the back of the wardrobe. Lucy goes deeper and deeper into the wardrobe. This must be a simply enormous wardrobe, thought Lucy, going still further in and pushing the soft folds of the coats aside to make room for her. Then she noticed that there was something crunching under her feet. I wonder, is that more mothballs? She thought, stooping down to feel it with her hand. But instead of feeling the hard, smooth wood of the floor of the wardrobe, she felt something soft and powdery and extremely cold. This is very queer, she said, and went on a step or two further. Finally, she realizes she's not in the wardrobe at all, but in a snowy forest. The first creature she meets is a fawn named Mr. Tumnus, half man, half goat. He tells her she's in a whole different world called Narnia. Narnia? What's that? said Lucy. This is the land of Narnia, said the fawn, where we are now. All that lies between the lamppost and the great castle of Care Paravel on the eastern sea. And you, you have come from the wild woods of the west? I, I got in through the wardrobe in the spare room, said Lucy. Ah said Mr. Tumnus in a rather melancholy voice. If only I had worked harder at geography when I was a little foreign, I should no doubt know all about those strange countries. It is too late now. The fawn tells Lucy that Narnia is in the middle of a great conflict. The White Witch has installed a perpetual winter, though it's never Christmas. Eventually... Lucy learns that a prophecy says the queen's reign will end when four human children show up in Narnia. 
only the great lion Aslan, Narnia's true leader, can restore order. When Lucy returns home, she tells her siblings all about Narnia. And at first, they don't believe her. But then her brother, Edmund, reaches Narnia himself. Instead of the kind fawn, he meets the White Witch. She offers him a hot beverage, calling him by the Narnian name for human. It is dull, son of Adam, to drink without eating, said the queen presently. What would you like best to eat? Turkish delight, please, your majesty, said Edmund. That candy, it turns out, is bewitched. Edmund is now under the witch's spell. When all four children return to Narnia, Edmund sneaks away to be with the White Witch, rather than joining his siblings in the search for Aslan. Aslan, if you remember, is the good lion who promises to drive the White Witch out and return things to normal in Narnia. When the children see him for the first time, he's surrounded by tree women and centaurs, a unicorn and a pelican, a great dog, and two leopards. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And then they found they couldn't look at him and went all trembly. Aslan eventually rescues Edmund from the witch, who wants to kill the boy. The lion and the witch make a secret deal. Aslan's life in exchange for Edmund's. And the queen kills the lion. But Aslan, he comes back to life. When Aslan is killed and comes back to life, and I think it's Susan who says to him, but what does it mean? And Aslan says, well, if the white witch had looked deeper into the deep magic, she would have found that it says there deep down that if someone who is completely innocent of any ill behavior and any treachery, sacrifices his life to save a traitor, then death itself will start working backwards. If you just hit that right on the nail in the Bible, you've got Jesus dying for us on the cross. Many readers have interpreted the Narnia books as a Christian allegory because of Aslan. After all, C.S. Lewis was a Christian, and he wrote extensively about Christianity. But Douglas says Lewis hadn't planned the character of Aslan. He came to him after he started writing. Douglas contends that Lewis didn't necessarily intend to write a Christian book. He set about to write a really good and worthwhile and valuable book for children to read. And of course, if you are a committed Christian, that sort of book is going to have some concealed, well, not concealed, but covert, I would say, Christianity threaded right through it. You can't help it if you're a Christian. People complain about those books. It's just Christianity wrapped up in a fairy tale. And I really didn't care. This is Owen Colfer, the author of the Artemis Fowl series. I made the choice that I was not going to read that into these books and that I was going to take them as their own mythology and enjoy them in that way. Because I think first and foremost, that is what they're supposed to be. So he took what he wanted from the book. Part of it? was a lesson about not falling for extremes. It's not all 
black and white, right and wrong, good and bad, that these gray areas in the middle that people inhabit. The character that really showed him that was Edmund, the middle sibling who initially sides with the queen. He was the guy who made like one little mistake and next thing he was enthralled to the evil witch. So he just had one little piece of Turkish delight and he was gone. And I felt to myself, I would totally have taken that Turkish delight. I mean, if someone, beautiful lady said to me, you know, kid, would you like some some candy? I would say, absolutely. So Owen was really rooting for Edmund the whole time to get his redemption. He was the character I identified with because I've never identified with the, you know, the stern hero who's worthy to wield a sword. I mean, I always identified with the kid who was like standing behind that hero who was not quite worthy enough, but still had some value. He thinks that newer fiction has embraced heroes that aren't really heroes all the time, like Edmund. But that's thanks to books like The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. So in in a way, C.S. Lewis was kind of ahead of his time a little bit. The hero in Owen's book, Artemis Fowl, is cut from a similar cloth. Artemis is a 12-year-old boy who comes from a wealthy crime family. He's very intelligent, but often applies his smarts to nefarious ends. In the first book, he gets his hands on a super-secret book of magic belonging to the fairies. The fairies live underground in a high-tech, magical world parallel to the humans. Artemis wants their gold and hatches a plan to take it from them by using what he learns in their own book against them. I've always been interested in the bad guys. Like I like Hannibal Lecter, Bart Simpson, Huckleberry Finn. So I just love that character. But the inspirations for the books were also more personal. Owen grew up in a town called Wexford in Ireland. When he was a kid, his dad taught local history. He started these tours, and initially they were for his students. He would bring the students downtown during the school day and show us the Viking streets, and he would show us where the old town wall was and when it was built and the boundaries of the old town. Owen remembers a particular tour. We were walking along our main street in Wexford one day, and I remember asking, that, that, why is it so narrow? Because in those days, it was a two-way street, and it was very difficult to get two cars to pass each other, and it was always a traffic jam. His dad explained that the reason it was so narrow was because under that street was an older street that the Vikings once used, and they only needed it to be wide enough for a cart. And he said... As civilization advanced, they just built on top of the old streets and the old buildings. So 10 foot below us, there's the Viking Street. And I found that fascinating. And, and it stuck with me for a long time. So when I started to write books about leprechauns and fairies, I imagined that if you went down another 100 feet, you would find their civilization. And in my books, that civilization is still there and thriving, but just hidden underground. And so you can I can trace that idea directly back to my dad welcome me and my brothers down the main street in Wexford down and telling us about the Vikings. The inspiration for Artemis came from his brother. I had this picture of my little brother, Donal, or I saw a picture when he made his first communion and he was wearing this Roger Moore type suit as you have to on that day. And he looked very mischievous. And I just thought to myself, he looks really like a James Bond bad guy. 
So I had this character of a James Bond bad guy who was only 12 or 10, which I thought would be an excellent comedy character. And, and at the same time, I was trying to develop an updated version of the old Irish legend where the boy captures a leprechaun for his crock of gold. And after about 10 years, I realized, well, who else is going to steal this crock of gold except my 10-year-old James Bond bad guy? I must have had that those separate ideas for at least 10 years before I got the notion to stick them together. But once I had that, then, uh, yeah, I wrote it very quickly. And that would have been about the year 1999, 2000. He didn't think the book would do much since his character was so unlikable and all. But the book's popularity exploded. I still don't know why people like them so much. I, I ask kids all the time, I said, what do you like about Artemis? And a lot of the time they said, we don't like, he, he made us angry. He, just when he was getting somewhere, he would do something really mean and they would be furious with him. And, and a lot of people would say, yeah, I just threw the book away. So I'm not reading that. And then they would come back to it because they just had to see what this obnoxious child would do next. I think it's like the Howard Stern effect. His publisher asked for more books. And like C.S. Lewis, who never intended to write a series, Owen found himself writing a series. I had a lot of trouble with number two, actually, because I was thinking to myself, okay, he's a bad guy on number one, but if this is a series, he can't just stay a bad guy. He has to develop. And also, what kind of example is that to give to kids that you're a bad guy and then the result is you get everything you want? So over the course of the series... Artemis starts to slowly change to become a good guy. And so in the middle section of the series, he was not exactly good, but he was decent enough. But everything he did, there was always an angle. There was something in it for him. But by the last book, then, he had to become selfless. Like He had to do something good, but for no gain and actually at great cost. Owen says it's here that fantasy does its best work. It allows readers to place themselves in the shoes of relatable characters, even if they're battling totally different demons. His hero, Artemis Fowl, gives kids real lessons, even if they're not trying to, you know, steal fairy gold. I think it's a way to deal with these issues in a grander scale that you can apply to yourself on a smaller scale. So if you're a child reading this and you have made a few bad decisions, as we all have made a few bad decisions, you can apply that to yourself and say, well, if this guy can change and he's made some horrible mistakes, then it is possible for me to change as well. Owen says Edmund in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe ultimately goes through his own transformation. Once he rejoins his brother and his sisters, he plays a key role in the battle against the witch. He is injured in the fight, and when his sister, Lucy, revives him with a magic potion, the good Edmund is back. He had become his real old self again and could look you in the face. And there, on the field of battle, Aslan made him a knight. For Douglas Gresham, that world, you know, the one where lions can knight young boys, it will always appeal to kids. Almost every child with any imagination lives in his own or her own fantasy world. It generates itself within their minds. And when they read a book which puts all their fantasy thinking into a rational format, 
it must it, well it does it just completely enthralls them and fills them with joy and i think that's what you're what you're looking at it's not that the child is looking for the fantasy it's the fantasy is looking to get out of the child douglas says the lion the witch and the wardrobe remains ever present in his own family he read it as a child and now his grandkids are reading it i think that's inevitable in this family it should be inevitable in every family and i hope it gets to be that because it's such valuable stuff to children. It leaves the children with a, to start with, inquiring minds, which are important. Looking for nobility in their lives, which is important. All of the sorts of things one can learn from Dahlia are hugely useful to children growing up. The book is sly about some of its lessons, but it ends on a straightforward note. When the children return home from Narnia, they tell the professor all about their adventure. He believes every word they say. More than that, he tells them that their adventures are only just beginning. Keep your eyes open, he says. Once a king in Narnia, always a king in Narnia. But don't go trying to use the same route twice. Indeed, don't try to get there at all. It'll happen when you're not looking for it. And don't talk too much about it, even among yourselves. And don't mention it to anyone else, unless you find that they've had adventures of the same sort themselves. What's that? How will you know? Oh, you all know, all right. Special thanks to Douglas Gresham and Owen Colfer. By the way, Owen's book, Artemis Fowl, is being adapted and will hit the big screen in 2020. For more about the Chronicles of Narnia, visit harpercollins.com. If you love the podcast, let us know on Twitter, at ReadingPod. That's R-E-A-D-I-N-G-P-O-D, ReadingPod. Or you can simply head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We read all of them, of course, and we feature them on our newsletter, which, if you're not signed up for that, it's easy. Head on over to rememberreading.com where you can sign up to get episodes, quotes, trivia, and more delivered to your inbox every month. Remember Reading is produced by Irina Zhurov and Stephanie Marudis of Cuvenda Media. And I'm Lindsay Jacobson of HarperCollins. Thanks for listening, and until next time. Hold up. 